Hello and welcome to the Rebooted Open Fire podcast sponsored by Frank and Risk Management Services, a new series of podcasts focusing on fire safety industry and tackling the current issues facing responsible persons in the commercial and residential sectors. My name's Dave Calvert and my co-presenter, as always, is Tom Gilbert. Hello, Tom. Hello, Dave. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. What's been going on this week? I'm genuinely at a loss of what's going on. It's sort of Christmas party season, isn't it? Well, it's building up, yeah. We've got uh, we've got various invites on the horizon, haven't we? We have. We've got the, um, the, the ever-popular Gerda Christmas party coming up in... See, this could get awkward. This could be where you mention parties that you've been invited to and I you find haven't. out that I haven't been. Have you been invited to the Gerda? I have. Oh, I okay, have. fine. Yep. I probably won't go then. It's not exclusive enough. <laughs> um, what are we talking about this week, Dave? Okay, so this week we will be talking about uh, cladding and the MHCLG guidance notes that have been coming out. Um, there's a lot of question questions being raised by various clients and various parts of the sector. Um, so we'll be bringing in Anthony Robson, uh, fire engineer, to um, talk us through some of those. It's probably worth mentioning that if you're listening to this, don't turn off now because I appreciate that might not sound like the most exciting title. I think you'll be surprised. I think it, it will be. There's a lot of question marks yeah, on, on the guidance notes and criticisms and um, people wanting to know more information. So I think it'll be a, another useful one. There's also a bit of a sad thing going on with regard to news this week. Go on. Well, our news reporter's not here. Yes, unfortunately, our roving news reporter Lucy Witts is on holiday um, this week and next week, actually. So that leaves us uh, in a bit of a difficult situation, as in we don't know what's going on in the world, do we? No, well, I mean, I suppose in a plus point, generally the news that she would um, talk about was fundamentally wrong. Well, yeah, but at least you'd have a good stab at being a news reporter. She had a go, um, but yeah, we'll get her back in the new year um, after her holiday. I don't even think she should have holidays. Yeah, well, she's she's um, she, she yeah she's gone off for a little break, and she will be back joining us. We haven't sacked her because of the inaccuracy of her news or anything like that. Um, so I've got some news for you, Tom. Have you? Um, so I haven't told you this yet, but um, we, the Open Fire Podcast, we are now sponsoring a racing car, an actual real racing car. Are we? We are. So um, that this explains is, the expenses, Bill. I'm showing you a picture of it at the moment. Okay, that is actually a real racing. It car. It is a real racing car. So this is a, a vintage. Uh, it, it races in the vintage um, category. Okay. Of racing cars, which is basically from about 1989 onwards, uh, or sort of back backwards. Um, and this is raced by um, a friend of friend of the show, Mark Adkins. Okay. Um, he's a, um, what do you call it, a, no, a novice driver, a, um, a rookie driver. Okay. So this is his second season. Right. Um, I'm, I'm anticipating you're going to ask how, how he's doing. And you're not going to know the answer. No, no, I do know the answer. How's he getting on? I don't think Mark will mind as as saying that it's been a tough season. Okay. <laughs> so far, he, he hasn't finished higher than about I think about 22 in, okay. in the races but that is probably a lot higher than if we were to drive the car it is, it is a lot harder I've been to watch him at Brands Hatch a couple of times now and uh, it, it is a, a tough um, very difficult type of car to, to race I mean how many yes. cars are in the races 22 uh, it, ver <laughs> it varies anything between uh, you know sort of 20 to 22 tw maybe 23 sometimes. but I mean these are like full races aren't they you know we're talking probably 30 odd cars I would have thought yeah but um, um, yeah so we're now sponsoring this race car we've got the open fire logo um, on the on the front end of it at the pointy end I think there's a technical yeah. term 
which is the pointy at the front. Yeah, the bonnet, I suppose. So it's on the bonnet. You can't the bonnet because the, the engine isn't. The engine's at the back, isn't I'm it? I'm basically looking at what looks like a 1980s Formula One car. Yes. This isn't like a Ford Anglia. No, no, no. Yeah, it's it's an open wheeled racing car. Is that yeah, it's awesome. Um, so we're we're going to be following his progress through the rest of this series and the third series. Is, it, can, is he going to come on? Uh, we, we, when he finishes. When he a finishes higher, his last race, we'll get start Mark on, on to talk about it, and maybe some of his racing buddies, and he can. Uh, we, maybe we could do an episode on At fire Hatch. safety in in racing at Brands Hatch. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay, moving on to today's episode. Wonderful. So, just welcome to the studio um, again, Anthony Robson. Anthony Robson, fire engineer extraordinaire. Nice to have you back, Anthony. Nice to be back, thanks. Probably still quite <laughs> quiet in the fire engineering world, isn't it, Anthony? Yeah, just wish I had some stuff to do, to be honest with you. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of fire engineers scratching around for work <laughs> at the moment. Um, it sort of helps that the outside of most buildings are on fire at the moment. And another one today. And another one, indeed. Yeah, we've got a hotel fire today, completely gutted. Um, I'd imagine there'll be calls for sprinklers in hotels by the end of the day by some prestigious colleagues. Um you know, it's what happens. Old buildings made of wood tend to burn down. Strange that, yeah. It is funny. <laughs> um, but there you go. So, Anthony, we um, asked you to come in um, to talk to us about uh, cladding generally and the um, MHCLG uh, guidance notes, sort of um, specifically guidance note 14, but I think we're going to talk about a few of them. Yeah. Um, can you just very basically start us off these guide what are we talking about when we talk about the mhclg guidance notes first off what, where do they come from what do they mean to us yeah so obviously following grenfell um there's been a sort of two-pronged attack from the government you've had the upgrade sorry the updates to a uh, build regulations approved document b that are designed you know to tackle the new build issue yep and then the advice notes have been released on the other side to tackle the existing building issue okay um started off with advice note one which was directed at ACM specifically, obviously following what we know at Grenfell. And then over time, they've developed, we're now up to... 22. 22 20, I think 24 maybe now. Okay. Um, with for covering varying things and from high-pressure laminates to balconies and timber cladding. Yep. Uh, so it's just the government's way of kind of tackling the issue on existing buildings. Um, but I'm pretty sure everyone will agree with me that it's causing a massive headache for the industry at the moment. It's because they're clear as mud, right? Yeah, yeah. Really open to interpretation. Um, insurers and mortgage companies have now got hold of them, uh, making it really difficult for anyone in a building that's got any cladding to get a mortgage or insurance. Yeah. And they're basically being used as a, um, a binary, yes, you're okay, no, you're not okay by mortgage lenders, right? Yeah, and they quite nicely put in there that, you know, get the advice of a fire engineer, yet the fire engineers are restricted by their insurers as yeah. to what they can and cannot say um, in terms of the government advice. So quite often, if the if you ask the question, we've got combustible materials, we don't have any testing um, records, is it okay? Yeah. The answer's going to be no, you're probably going to have to take it off. So I read in Inside Housing that the, um, the cladding issue affects 600,000 people as in 600,000 individual occupants, not surprising. Oh, I thought it'd be more. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, 600,000 people, I mean, that's a lot, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, to be fair, that's probably people who've got, that's probably leaseholders who've got their own mortgages. I mean, you've yeah. got the other side of the spectrum, all the HA residents and stuff that are in the buildings just renting. Yeah. Obviously, don't have to worry about mortgages, got contents insurance, but the actual HA themselves have got to worry about builders' insurance. Well, exactly. I mean, there was a stat in the Purposeful Blocks of Flats guide that said 10% of England's population lives in a purpose built block. 
So 10% of the population is about 60 million. Yeah. Sorry, it's about six, six million. Sorry, there are 60 million people. 10% is 6 million living in purpose-built flats and it affects 600,000. So it actually affects 10% of all flats. I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. That is a lot. Well, I think maybe that, I mean, advice note 14 and advice note one regarding ACM and even the one regarding high-pressure laminates generally are applied to buildings over 80 metres tall. Yeah. But the latest one that came out for balconies and timber cladding is every building. Is every building. Um, and it kind of, it puts the onus on building owners to review every building they've got, regardless of yeah. height for combustible materials. And there's a wrongful interpretation in my mind that people think that because maybe they don't have this advice note 14 compliance thing, that therefore they're living in a dangerous building. And that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, not at all. And I'm, I mean, a classic example is brick. So currently, I'm working with several clients where they've got brick buildings, and they they so they're concrete frames, still SFS, still frame, like yeah. support, and then they've got obviously a sheathing board, some sort of combustible insulation, and then brickwork. Now we all know the risk is really really low. Um, yes, it's combustible insulation, but it's a brickwork facade. You, yeah. As long as you've got your cavity barriers and everything in place, the risk is really really low. Yet when you blanketly apply advice note fourteen. All of a sudden, if you haven't got a BS eight for one for test for that build up, um, insurers prevent a lot of fire engineering companies from being able to produce a desktop study because so, of the PI insurance because of the drama PI issues, and almost pushes you down the road of seeing if you can replace the insulation on a brick building. Yeah, which is insanity, isn't it? Yeah. So that's a bit. That's the elephant in the room at the moment because nobody's yeah. really focusing on that, but they're starting to look at it. And the other thing is, you say the risk is very low, and obviously some people will listen and say, well. Low risk is still risk, right? And obviously, when we talk about low risk, low risk is tolerable risk, right? Yeah, definitely. Because nothing is zero risk. No, not at all. I mean, if you've got windows stacked in a block of flats, obviously, you allow for a certain amount of flame impingement anyway. So if you've got stacked windows, the just inherent design, you're, going to, you're allowing fire spread from one flat to another, just vertically climbing the building through the windows. Yeah. So we allow for that risk anyway. So if it's, I mean, the brickwork isn't going to contribute to that. No. Um, but it's just people's perception of combustible materials and that. So, yeah. so you, you say, um, Anthony, that um, the um, the existence of the guidance note and the non-compliance of it doesn't necessarily mean it's an unsafe building, but are we seeing that clients are generally meeting their obligations in this regard or seeking to meet meet them, or are, are we...? Well, it's a bit of a windfall, really. So, so obviously it started off with ACM, and then it kind of broadened out. People started looking at Render and whether they had EPS yep. behind, you know, different sort of installations there. And then it's gone to HPLs, now you're looking at and timbers and... Now it's kind of any external wall finish. I think yeah. brick and terracotta and stuff are kind of being left alone for now. But now the mortgage providers and the insurers are involved. That you know everyone's looking at everything and so trying to do that, the best they can. You say about the mortgage providers, and obviously there's um, if somebody's trying to get a new mortgage, then um, suddenly their mortgage provider is asking questions that they probably wouldn't have asked for before, or evidence that they wouldn't have asked for before, and therefore landlords responsible persons are having to go to their fire risk assessors or fire consultants or fire engineers to try and get clarification on the cladding. Um, do you, are you seeing a sort of a bottleneck in the industry that's, that's sort of being caused by the, the, the guidance note and not really being thought through? Um, it's really difficult. I mean, the problem is I think the advice notes were released with obviously, obviously the best intentions and yep. completely understandably. Um, it, the fire engineer isn't doesn't have the ability to kind of actually analyse the risk and present a case as they would previously because of PI limitations. Um, and basically puts the onus on the building owners to decide if they're happy with the level of risk or not. 
Um, that's what the advice notes do. But because of the insurers and mortgage providers' involvement now, it's swung the other way, whereas they won't be able to get the finance on the buildings unless they comply with the advice notes yeah. in black and white form. And that's even that's even gone further now. So it used to be a desktop review of drawings and materials used. Now it's now they're insisting on site investigation to confirm that that's actually what's been installed yeah. as per the drawings. So it's really, really, really hard at the moment to prove that any building complies with the advice notes, even if we're confident it does. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it's uh, putting a big strain on the industry. I, I, I can't see it being sustainable going as it is. I no. There's going to have to be some intervention somewhere. Well, I mean, the competency required to do that, based on the, um, I'm pretty sure it's the MHCLG Note 1, yes, which talks is, about yeah. competence. And if you think that you need a chartered fire engineer to do that, there's only 250 of them on the planet. Well, it's not, don't necessarily need a chartered fire engineer. You can have a member of the institution of fire engineers able to do it. You can have chartered surveyors and stuff. I mean, what makes me sort of laugh a little bit is some of the competency criteria. You could have a chartered surveyor go look at it who's got absolutely no fire engineering experience yeah. whatsoever. A fire engineer, if they're not MI fire or chartered fire engineer, doesn't qualify to be able to look at it. No. Um, yet they'll know a lot more about it than you know, a chartered, an architect, for example. Yeah, and you get back to the circle of competency as well, which yeah, is, is it education, training, <laughs> experience, a mixture of them, to what extent does it need to be mixed, Exactly. Yeah. So the advice note on balconies, does this place an additional requirement on clients for buildings below 18 metres, or is it actually, there's no change? No, so the balcony one can apply to any building. So even if you've got a ground plus two building and you've got, you know, first floor and second floor, you've got a balcony and they're stacked balconies, for example, on a steel frame with timber decking, they would be considered a risk and, you know, largely my advice would probably replace the decking and with something non-combustible, at least better combustibility than just a sort of garden yeah. timber deck. And the problem is that, in a way, exceeds the functional requirements of the building regulations in the first place, doesn't it? Because it, it's got you've got to be in a position where you don't think that's safe. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, the, I think, obviously, given the barking fire, that demonstrated how much, you know, timber on the outside of a building, whether it's balconies, obviously, that had some additional cladding on the sides, how much it can contribute yeah, to the Yeah, of course. But... Again, I think if it's, you know, depending on the height of the building, the amount of flats, the size of the balconies, you know, whether it really is going to contribute much. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a barking fire. I mean, are we seeing these sort of fires? Are we seeing like a bit of a knee jerk reaction um, every time there's a fire and there's um, so, something that's seen like the, the new um, focus and then a guidance note comes out on the back of it? Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Obviously, any changes to regulation and guidance and stuff is always knee jerk in a certain. You know, you wait for it, wait for a fire to happen, and then you change the guidance to suit because you learn from the mistakes that have been made. Yeah. Probably in this situation, taking Grenfell into account, I think necessarily the mistakes weren't with the regulations. The mistake was with the, you know, the application of the regulations. Yeah. And the work, potentially the workmanship as well. So I'm just speculating there. Um, and I, th- I, my personal opinion is let's focus on getting that right first and yeah. make the suitable changes to regulations as we go. I don't necessarily think the changes to the regulations are wrong, but I think we need to make sure we're doing what we're doing what we're supposed to be doing now correctly. Yeah. And then we can figure out what changes need to be made going forward. The drama I foresee is that obviously we're in a position where you have a fire like barking, which shows you how timber contributes. I mean, we all look at each other around the room and say, well, of course, timber contributes to fire. It's made of wood, right? But the problem that I foresee is that you go to approved document B, the old diagram 40 said you can use timber cladding on the external side of a building, as long as it's more than nine millimeters thick, right? Yeah. So, to use timber is as as a cladding material in a building under eighteen meters is okay according to approved document B. But yet, you and I would probably sit here now and say, "Well, actually, if I was being a fire engineer and not blindly following ADB, 
and I applied some judgment, would would I accept a 17.9 metre tall building that's been fully clad in timber now? Yeah. And I think you and I would probably agree, no. No, no, but I think it's really odd. So, you know, if you did build that, you would say it complies with the guidance in approved document B. Yeah. Yeah, in the advice note 14, sorry, uh, yeah, uh, 14, where it come, no, sorry, the advice note on balconies, Yeah. it now basically says that just because it met the guidance in ADB doesn't necessarily mean it meant the functional requirements of the building regulations. Yes. Um, which means that technically they're saying that even if, if you did do that, even though it was signed off and you met the guidance, you yeah. didn't actually meet the building regulations at the time of construction. Yeah. Which is crazy. And the irony, of course, is that the Building Act, which I think is 1984, Building Act 1984, Section 7, basically says that you can rely on approved documents to meet the functional requirements of ADB. Yeah. Oh, sorry, to meet the functional requirements of Building, building Act. Yeah. And actually, that's a legal, you're, yeah. you're, it's actually legal protection. And the approved documents are all recognised as being the method of compliance, demonstrating compliance to the functional requirements of the building. Yeah, absolutely. RFB, A, whatever it is. So is there, is there a kind of a, I mean, a lay person would be sitting here listening to this uh, conversation and, and essentially saying, shouldn't all buildings in this day and age consist of entirely non-combustible external walls? What, what, why, <laughs> why is that not a practical approach? Well, I think one of my favourite points is, Pretty much, if it's waterproof, it's oil-based, yeah. um, which by its very nature is going to be combustible. Um, so the big one at the moment is cavity trays. Uh, so a lot yeah. of people are building buildings, they're no longer allowed to use plastic cavity trays because they're combustible. So quite often people are resorting to stainless steel cavity trays. Yeah. Now, obviously the cost difference between them is going to be astronomical. Yeah, of course. Um, yet that's currently one of the only ways to demonstrate compliance. Yeah, and I, but I suppose the people would say, well, it doesn't matter whether a cavity tray yeah. costs... Ten times more if it's safe. But the point is, real is it, I mean, is a cavity tray going to contribute, contribute to fire spread? Yeah, and when everything else in the external wall build-up is non-combustible or barring maybe a membrane, a breather membrane or something. Yeah, absolutely. The answer is no. Of course, so, it's not. So I think just to sort of answer your question, Dave. Obviously, not that my opinion matters because we've got a guest. <laughs> um, but I think there is a big there is a big sea change here in that what. The functional requirements of building regulations, the guidance, the advice notes basically say is that the external walls of a building are allowed to contribute to a fire as long as that's in a measured, sensible amount, right? Broadly speaking, particularly under 18 metres, you are allowed to use materials that would be considered to be combustible in the external facades, right? Yeah. But what I would say is society doesn't accept that anymore. No. And that's happened since Grenfell Tower, we had the fire at the Cube on Friday. We've had the Barking Fire. We've had a total loss of a residential care home and all this stuff. If Grenfell Tower hadn't happened, I think the MHCLG would have probably looked at the Cube at the weekend and shrugged their shoulders and said, well, that's, it kind of happens. No one died. No one died. Functional requirements have been met because no one died. Um, and we haven't had this massive... You know, to use a colloquialism that we, we, you and I have heard for years is there aren't bodies in the streets, right? Yeah. Well, actually, now there are, and society is aware that there are. And as a result of that, everyone's tolerance to risk has now gone right down, rightly or wrongly. That's where we are. So, what we believe in our professional um, capacity is acceptable versus what society now thinks is acceptable, they're now completely different. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it can be frustrating, obviously, when you're, you know, you know, you've got something that complies with, the building regulations, yet now the mortgage providers won't sign it off um, because it's got combustible yeah. materials. Whether it's below, above, or below eighty meters doesn't seem to matter at the moment. Yeah. But if you're a, you know, if you're a buyer buying a new home, if somebody says to you, "You can buy this flat, 
Um, but it's got some combustible materials in the external facade. Yeah, it's below 18 metres. We can buy this one. It's exactly the same, same height, but there's no combustible materials. Yeah. Most people now would go straight for the one with non-combustible materials. Yeah, of Because course. of all the publicity and their peace of mind. So yeah. I think that that will drive the industry change because that's people are going to be looking out for But it that. is ultimately, I mean, the, the public perception, it, it might not agree with what the building regulations are, but that's how we drive any change, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Regardless of fire. I mean, whether we change changing language that we use and things like that compared to what we used or was acceptable decades ago. Ultimately, it's public yeah. opinion. What's happened now is, Dave, is that... And people need assurance the homes they live in... Are safe. Are, are safe. And regardless of whether there's there's um, substances that have been tested, people are looking for that assurance that they feel safe, not yeah. that just that they're told they're safe because they've been told they're safe. And also they didn't realise, they didn't know beforehand that, that, that guidance would allow combustible materials to be used in buildings under 80 metres. They didn't know that. Oh. You know, but now... They are acutely aware of that because it's you're starting to see it. And interestingly, there aren't more fires. They're just being reported more. Yeah, that's. I think that's one thing at the moment. Is obviously it's, that's, any fire now is so well publicised yeah. um, that everyone's aware of how many fires but, actually oh, occur. It, in the light of that, there, there was a recent uh, fire, uh, uh, tower block in Darefield Way in Notting Hill. Um, we're, talk, we're talking about a month or two ago. Yeah. Uh, the press reported complaints that the fire alarm failed to activate and there were no sprinklers fitted. Um, I mean, obviously, sitting around this table, we're um, well, well aware of what should and shouldn't have been in that building in terms of sprinklers and fire yeah. alarms and what they should and shouldn't have done. But perhaps you could outline why these, uh, or whether you think these are legitimate criticisms, and if not, why why they're not. I think if the building was built in line with the guidance at the time, so you probably had independent uh, detection systems within each flat, then a communal system to activate any ventilation systems without any alarms, that would be very... If the building's below 30... So that's the difference. If a member of the public is saying a fire alarm failed to activate, what they mean is they didn't hear it. Yeah, and they and you know, and if you're in a block of flats, a traditional build block of flats, you wouldn't hear the fire alarm unless the fire was in your flat. Yeah, and... Because the, it's purely there to activate smoke fence. It's a silent... It's, yeah, the it's one... Not, the, it's yeah. not an alarm. Yeah. It's a it's yeah. fire detection it's not only. Fire alarm. Yeah, detection yeah. only. So, so I think that's important, and that, that it's those kind of subtleties and intricacies that are lost in the media sort of frenzy to kind of report these sort of fires. Yeah, and I think obviously there's been a lot of publicity, especially recently, obviously given the potential, uh, the consultation regarding changes yeah. to guidance going forward regarding detection systems, alarm systems in communal areas, uh, lighting and signage. And yeah. I think going forward, you'll probably find there is likely to be applied some level of communal alarm uh, to residential buildings. Yeah, I believe... I suspect or I think it would be best if that is operable by the fire service only and not based on detect uh, automatic detection. Yeah. Um, that's pers my personal feeling. And that's what it says in the phase one of the yeah. Grenfell Inquiry. I think it says that system should exist. Yeah, and I think, but I think, it, I mean, there's talk of automatic activation, but I think that's just dangerous. You're getting down false alarm routes. So I think keep it simple. It's always been the same. You get the whole stay put simultaneous discussion, but ultimately if you're in a flat and the fire alarm sounds in your flat, get out of the building. Yeah. Um, and it's always been the same because, you know, if the fire alarm goes off in your flat, you should get out. The fire's normally there. Obviously, putting the system in changes it slightly, but at least if you hear it, you should just leave. You yeah. Know, you should leave. My only concern that I have is that as we if we go down the route where we require fire alarms in purpose-built blocks of flats, my concern is that with that generally comes the opportunity for fire engineers to, to reduce... The fire resistance of the structure or the, the compartments or extend travel distances and i think there's a real danger that if we don't leave the current regulations and standards for stay put strategy buildings the same 
So the one hour compartment yeah. principle, leave that as is and then say, and on top of that, you must have this rather than using it as an enhancement and therefore you can reduce. I think largely now those days have are behind us now. I think you reckon? A lot. Yeah, well, obviously there's still, you still get the exception in terms of maybe travel distances, but broadly speaking, I don't think many people are looking to reduce compartmentation um, or reduce level of detection, things like that. I think them days yeah. are past us, given what's happened over the last sort of like few years. I think them days are past us. I think the fire engineer's role is now more about getting the design to comply with recognised standards. Yeah. Um, obviously, you can, there is a level of engineering to be done with certain ventilation systems and, like I said, potential extended travel. More in the commercial environment, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but with residential, I think it's going to be, let's try and meet the code. Let's make it as safe as we possibly can. And we know it's safe. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the drive, not just from the fire engineers in general, but from the developers and the people building these buildings. They just want to make sure it's as safe as possible, ticks all the boxes and yeah. built and it's it's correct. I think what we'll see in the next episode, Dave, is when we start talking about international standards, we will see what what the world looks like when evacuation strategies and fire alarms are used in Different these ways, sorts of yeah. buildings. Um, and I think we'll probably be able to have some sensible conversations. Who, who have we got in next week for that, Tom? So we've got um, uh, Mario Lara Lederman coming next week and he's a fire engineer from abroad. That's quite a name, Mario. Lara Lederman. Why has he got two surnames or should we ask him when he turns? You, you will week? ask him, but um, he comes from Chile and in Chile, I believe, you take as a surname your grandfather's surname on both sides. Interesting. Oh, that's quite cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we will ask him. We will ask him. Uh, Anthony, I think you're, you're coming back to us um, again um, in week. the last episode of the series. Um, but before you go, we'd like you to take part in our 90-second quiz. Um, Tom, I I'm going to ask you who's at the top of our leaderboard, but I'm looking at the blank expression on your face and guessing that you can't remember because you haven't been keeping your records. Um, I think the top of the table there is with two points. And I think it was um, the chap from Echelon. Aaron John. Aaron John. Did, did uh, Andy Cunningham not smash him last week? I don't think he did. I think we should review that episode and, <laughs> and be sure. Okay. But Anthony's going to blow that apart okay. this week anyway because he has the same sort of weird brain that you do. So, Anthony, you do have a, a reputation for knowing uh, unusual facts. We're going to Probably not this unusual. But uh, I know you, you tend to like movie facts, but uh, we haven't gone down that line. Before we do go into the test, did anything happen to you this week that you'd like to share with us, Anthony? <laughs> well, you may have noticed, probably not from the, the listeners, but I'm uh, tossing and turning my uh, <laughs> cheeks because uh, I'm a little bit uncomfortable, shall we say. Yes, you've you've joined the um, the very enviable can't have any more children <laughs> club like I have. I have, yeah, two days in, but I'd say I'm almost fully recovered. That's excellent. It took me eight weeks to recover. Yeah, no, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm just a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, excellent. Well, <laughs> thank you for coming. Even though you probably wanted to sit at home with an ice pack. No, to be fair, I'd rather be out um, out about bored at home. So, well, indeed. <laughs> Right, you ready, Dave? Yeah. Oh, fertile I'm, one. I'm wincing as it is. Yeah, oh, I can't even one. bring myself to uh, have that conversation with my girlfriend at the moment. Um, okay, 90 seconds. Have you got your stopwatch, Tom, please? Yep. Okay, 90 seconds. Hey, Andy, I, you ready? I say go because I've got the stopwatch. Those are just the rules. Sorry. Right. In three, two, one, go. Anthony, it's illegal to swear in front of a corpse in what US state? Kansas. Texas. In Asheville, North Carolina, it's illegal to do what on the streets? Spit. Sneeze. Oh. You must register with the state in Arizona before becoming a what? Priest. An illegal drug dealer. <laughs> okay. It is illegal in Michigan to put what on your boss's desk? <laughs> An apple. 
a skunk. <laughs> Not some skunk. Yeah. A oh, skunk. Oh, right. Oh, okay. <laughs> In what city is it against the... Uh, I'm not going to ask that. It's just a guess of a city. Um, <laughs> Are they not all guesses? Well... <laughs> In Texas, criminals must give their victims what legally? A business card. 24 hours advance written notice. <laughs> it is illegal in, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, San Croix, Wisconsin, for women to wear what in public? Trainers. Anything red. <laughs> Anything red. It is illegal to do what... To, to the mayor of Paris. I'm really going to have to check my facts because some of these I'm not convinced about. Touch his hair? Stare at him. Oh. <laughs> In Alabama, it is against the law to be what while driving? Awake? Blindfolded. Oh. Boop, boop, boop. Time up. Okay, well, so, I did really uh, well there. Can you just count up the score for Anthony? So it was a nail-biting quiz where you scored a grand total of zero points. Well done, Anthony. Okay, thank you. That, that's actually not a bad score, judging from the rest of the series. <laughs> I think you're, you're level third, actually. Oh, you're probably level third. I think someone got a minus. I don't know how that happened. I th oh, yeah, I just... Uh... They were hard. They were guessy. They were, they were, they were guessy very guessy answer. questions. They weren't even. None of them were intuitive at all. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I followed them in my own mind. I got twelve. <laughs> I've never seen a fire engineer looking confused before. But it's happened. Yeah, it's happened. You never see one read advice note fourteen then. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, uh, Anthony uh, Robson of Fire Eng Head of Fire Engineering. Thank you, Risk Management Services. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you later in the series. Thank yeah. you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you, Anthony. Hope it wasn't too boring. <laughs> no, no. It, you, you made a, a, a dry subject um, as impressive as possible. Yes. Dry, as dry as I could. Um, Tom, where should people contact us if they want to appear on the show or have any comments about what Anthony's said? Um, so, obviously, you can email us at daveandtom at theopenfirepodcast.com or you can go to theopenfirepodcast.com website and contact us. Or if you know us, you can send us a message through LinkedIn or if you're in a WhatsApp group, send us a WhatsApp message. Anything you like, really. Okay, brilliant. So, next week, Mario Lara Lederman. Indeed. Okay. Um, and thanks very much for listening. Cheers, everybody. And we'll speak to you next week. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the persons appearing in the podcast and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Frankham or any of its officials. The appearance of guests on or the mention of third-party information, products or services or organisations within the podcast does not imply any approval, recommendation, certification or endorsement of them or of any entity they represent. Our podcasts are provided for general information only and should not be treated as substitute for professional advice or supervision from an appropriate property or built asset professional. Whilst all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances and the information presented in the podcast may become outdated over time. Frankham Consultancy Group and its subsidiaries, here in Frankham, make no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the Open Fire podcasts. Any reliance on the information provided is at your own risk. Frankham does not assume any liability for the use of, reference to or reliance on the podcast or the information presented within. 